All right, welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast. You're here for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Welcome back to another episode. I'm so glad to have you back. I've made a few small changes on the recording end of the podcast. I don't think that you're going to be able to tell any difference, but it does make things a little bit easier, a little bit more convenient for me on my end. So uh, if anything sounds, if, if it sounds bad, if things sound worse than usual, please reach out to me and let me know and I can kind of undo some of those changes and kind of go back to doing things uh, the hard way. But I do want to make sure that this podcast sounds as good as possible for you because it's just, let's be honest, it's easier to listen to when it sounds better. So we are one week into the Joe Biden administration, I guess almost a week, just shy of a week at the time of recording. And so far, nothing too crazy has happened, but Joe Biden has signed a whole lot of executive orders, uh, many of them undoing a lot of the things that Donald Trump did during his administration. And if you remember, Donald Trump signed a whole bunch of executive orders undoing a bunch of what was done in the Barack Obama administration. And I can't help but to just sit back and relax and enjoy the show when it comes to those kind of things that we can see that politics is just getting to be so petty and that each side is just blatantly seeking to obstruct the other one and to stand in the way of anything that the other one loves and anything that the other party wants. And I just have to simply enjoy that. And Politics has honestly always been petty. There were the letters back and forth. I think it was John Adams and Thomas Jefferson that, that wrote letters back and forth about how much they hated each other. And one of them even wrote a letter to the newspaper suggesting, uh, I think that the other was a transvestite or something like that. Um, it's always been petty. It's always been people who are willing to squabble a lot of times because it's a game of power. It's a game of pride and going after as much power and as much recognition as you can possibly get. And People are going to get upset when other people stand in the way of what they're trying to do, of what they think that their legacy is. If someone else is trying to stop that, it's going to upset people. So I would encourage you as we watch some of these things unfold, try not to get too emotionally involved, try not to get too worried about what's going on, because there's a very good chance that when the next Republican president is elected in four years or eight years or however long that it may be, there's a good chance we're just going to write more executive orders and just flip things back to the way that they were. So uh, we're not going to talk about any of those just yet because, honestly, I haven't seen anything that I feel like dedicating a whole lot of time to. Uh, but I did have a listener write in, and it says... Hey, I've been listening for a long time, but this is my first time writing in. I've been watching the Joe Biden inauguration on a couple of different news channels and wanted to know if you had any thoughts about the inauguration process and the way they're carrying out these ceremonies. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I've definitely got some thoughts on it. I did not watch much of it live, but I did catch some clips after the fact. Uh, I was pretty busy at work, but there were a few other people who were watching it on their computers and had it on in the break room and that kind of thing. So I caught bits and pieces of it and tried to catch any of the, the specific highlights or anything that the news or that Twitter was really trying to push. I tried to pay attention to those. One of the first things I noticed was that there seemed to be kind of a lot of walking and a lot of standing and it seemed like they really wanted to make sure that they could show that President Biden is healthy and in shape and ready to, you know, kind of lead on into possibly his second term. And good Lord, he'll be 82 years old at that point when he's running for a second term, if I remember correctly. And just to show, though, that he is going to be in this. He's healthy. They elected the right guy. All of this stuff just to kind of give those people encouragement. Of course, you got plenty of other people who say that Kamala Harris is going to take him out one way or the other. He's going to step down and she's going to take over. You've heard me talk in previous podcasts about how I just don't buy that. I don't think that that's true, but time will tell. We will see. Um, 
One of the other things I noticed about the inauguration was a real emphasis on diversity and lots of people from different races made sure they have lots of women involved to make sure that they were playing their part in the ceremony. And that was something that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody who's followed both sides of politics for any amount of time. We know that this is something that the left cares about deeply and that they find to be very important. And that kind of brings up an issue that I have with the libertarian community, that, that in the liberty movement, sometimes diversity can be lost or downplayed way too much. And on one hand, we don't want to be collectivists. We don't want to look at a group of people and only see them by their skin color or their religion or their sexuality or gender or race or any of those things. We don't want to focus too much on that. We don't want to generalize about people and say that if you are X, then you think Y or you are Y. That's not the way that we want to go about things. But at the same time, I think that a lot of these liberty types really try to act like race doesn't matter or gender doesn't matter at all. And I think that in that sense, we do possibly lose something uh, when it comes to that. And there's no secret that the liberty movement is mainly comprised of white males. And as white males, it's very easy for us to see other people who look like us or who we feel like we can relate to in positions of power and in prominent positions and all of that kind of thing. And it does mean something when you see someone who looks like you or someone who you have something in common with succeeding or in a place of power. You talk to somebody who's left-handed, they're going to notice when uh, a, a pitcher or a quarterback is left-handed. They're going to notice when somebody is signing something with their left hand because that's something that makes them unique. So if you are black or female or Muslim or whatever other kind of thing that might separate you physically or culturally, it may actually mean a lot to see someone who looks like you in a position doing something that maybe you never really thought about doing before. And I, I can't remember right now whether it was an astronaut or a pilot, something along those lines, but I'll never forget the look on my daughter's face when she found out that there could be girl pilots. And just the way that her face lit up because it had just never crossed her mind before that a girl could do that. And she had just never seen one and so that kind of thing in the back of your mind that maybe you never even consciously thought about it, but that thing was back there thinking, oh, okay, this is just something that men do. And suddenly this has opened up as a new possibility for something that she could consider that she may have never even considered doing. And in the same way, I think it's important when we talk about any of those kind of things that make us different from other people, that we have to find a way to celebrate our differences and celebrate what makes us unique while also not being collectivists and not just making broad assumptions about certain people or certain races, religions, whatever kind of thing that it is. Uh, I don't know where the line is with that. I don't know how the best way to solve that is, but I do know that when it comes to how the liberty community handles it a lot of times, which is just to completely ignore it and downplay it and say that it doesn't matter at all, uh, that's not necessarily the right way to go about things. And we need to find a better way to bring that into our conversations and our communities as well. And I have seen a lot of really good female libertarian candidates in the last couple of elections. That's been really exciting for me. And, you know, hopefully they'll be able to push the needle in that way. And obviously seeing women take libertarian positions are going to encourage more women who are politically affiliated otherwise or not politically interested or anything like that. That's going to help bring them into the fold too, because they're going to feel comfortable because they're not just going to be surrounded by a whole bunch of men. But that's just my little rant about where libertarians go wrong sometimes, I think. Uh, let's get back to the inauguration. Uh, lots of pomp and circumstance, lots of ritual, lots of a, a big 
huge ceremony that we had in this inauguration to make sure that we give this new president, this new administration, their proper welcome into power. So one of the things that is in The Problem of Political Authority by Michael Humer, it's a book I've mentioned several times, very, very interesting if you're into that kind of thing. One of the things that Michael Humer says is that confusing ceremonies and language really serve to make people feel like government is so much larger and so much more important than they can even comprehend. That This is something that is so much more intricate than anything that most of us can remember in our lives, and it kind of makes it seem as if this ceremony is old as time itself, that it's it's larger than life. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than our family. It's something that is really just cemented in the way that the world works. And it really almost makes you feel too small to even consider challenging it in any way. So what that does is even if you do vehemently disagree with the people in office or how they got there, you know, right now, a lot of people that voted for Trump are asking if the election was stolen. You know, are, are these people criminals? Should they be sent to jail? Is Joe Biden going to sell our country to China? Is Kamala Harris a corrupt cop? I mean, all of those questions that people are asking that may or may not have any basis in reality, it makes Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and these people that that we might oppose it makes them part of the system. It makes them part of this government that we look to. And so you're no longer challenging those people personally if you try to challenge it. Instead, you're challenging the system that they're a part of. You're challenging the government itself because they're becoming a part of it. And if you hope to become part of that system again someday, you hope to gain some of that power that we all look up to and that we have a capital city full of monuments to a lot of these people that have been involved in these kind of things... If you hope to become part of that again someday, like hopefully in the next four years, then it's probably best that you respect that ceremony and that you respect that office and that you respect that authority and you show your submission and you play nice so that hopefully everybody else is going to play nice when you get your turn if you win the next election or your side wins the next election. And the ceremony kind of has a, sort of a, a hint of like a religious ritual to it. And Robert Greene talks about this in 48 Laws of Power, that when you bring some sort of religion or some sort of mysticism into your following, whether you have a cult or a fad diet or a new genre of music or a government or anything, bringing that sense of kind of religion to it, it makes people feel like they're becoming a part of something that's even bigger than themselves, um, that it's even bigger than humanity itself that you are tapping into something that's ancient and all-powerful. And once more, that makes you feel important and feel excited to be a part of it. You may pass away, but your work and your support that you do in this movement and, and for this vessel, whatever it may be, is going to be recognized for generations to come. You're going to be part of history because you were part of this administration and supporting this thing, whether it be their turn to lead or your turn to lead. And that adds a sense of power and mystery to the whole thing, which, again, is going to make people feel even more compelled to be a part of it and even less likely to try to challenge it in any way. You know, just in the same way that a man would be unlikely to try to challenge God to a fistfight, uh, in the same way, it would be silly for you or, you know, a small group of protesters with you to try to put a stop to this great timeless transition of power that's been around since the dinosaurs roamed the earth or however you want to look at it. And that's important. That's meant to make you feel small and make them look big. 
And one of my favorite points that Michael Humer made when he's talking about a lot of this is that the theatrics of this whole thing also make it as if the ceremony is what transforms a mere mortal man into a president. That yesterday, this was just a good man. This was somebody who ran a good campaign and someone who a lot of people looked up to and admired. But now, because of this ceremony, because of the oath that he took, because he put his hand on this Bible and recited this pledge, now he is our president. He is the president of the United States. He is the leader of the greatest country in the world because this ceremony has taken place. And to me, this also explains why when you get an outsider like Donald Trump, who doesn't quote unquote belong in the office, that's why he's immediately compared to the great evil dictators of our time, like Adolf Hitler, when the reality is, you know, no, this guy is, he's just some blowhard who won an election and he just happens to be very different and act very different than the previous blowhards who won the elections. And you've heard me mention it on this podcast several times. It, that Donald Trump is not some spectacular force of good or force of evil, but instead that he's just a guy who's got some very good persuasion skills, got some very good social media skills, and he was able to run a very good campaign in 2016 and, and reach out to people who had felt disaffected uh, by the way that politics were, and he was able to kind of bulldoze his way into the White House, and he was able to win that election and to be an inspiration for what happened to be a pretty large crowd of people. But bringing it back to this, this president language where you go through this ceremony and you become the president, you become this great icon where we see paintings of these men hanging everywhere and we see their plaques on the wall and some of them are even carved into mountains because of their greatness. And so when you put them up on that pedestal, then they almost have to be either gods or devils of some sort. And, you know, that's kind of another thing that I see conservatives talk about a lot and that they really kind of leaned into the fact that God put Donald Trump in power for a reason. And I don't really have a problem if you want to believe that, but you got to be consistent there and say, well, if God put Donald Trump in power for a reason, then God also put Barack Obama in power and God also put Joe Biden in power. You've got to be consistent and admit those things too, which I guess following that logic, that would also mean that God did not put Hillary Clinton in power. So, um, you know, maybe he does exist. Who knows? But that's why, you know, you see these men elevated to such great levels. And, and it's because we put so much emphasis on this office and on this power and on the prestige of all of that. You, you see a lot of the same thing in this ceremony with a lot of the complicated language that's used in these ceremonies and also with a lot of laws in general. And they, they often bring a lot of foreign language into it. There's always Latin involved. And um, as far as I know, I don't think anybody actually speaks Latin unless you're using it to talk about medical terms or legal terms or um, performing an exorcism, something like that. You know, it's a, it's a language that's not used in every day, but it's meant to give off these very ancient ritualistic kind of feelings to make it feel once more like when you're using this language, you're talking about something that's bigger than yourself. And uh, it kind of causes you to kind of back down because it causes you to feel small. And a lot of the laws and the way that we operate our government is dependent on the language being confusing and hard to understand. Because if you were just to clearly and plainly say that 80 million people who voted one way, they voted the right way, they get to dictate how the other 260 million people, the people that voted wrong or didn't vote, 
They get to tell those people what the laws are going to be and how they're going to spend their money and which countries we're going to war with and which guns will be illegal and which drugs will be illegal and what people from what countries are going to be allowed to immigrate here and what the tax codes are going to be and who will be allowed to play women's sports. And anybody who acts against those laws and policies may actually be violently thrown into prison to be put in a cage where they will sit until hopefully they've learned their lesson or until we're done punishing them, whichever comes second. That would sound absolutely crazy. But when we add a few Latin phrases over it and slap in God we trust on the top of it, suddenly people feel that it's a lot more complicated than that. And it is probably best if they just trust the process. That they just accept that they're small and this is big and we're better off putting our faith in this big thing than to bother with any of our solutions that we might be able to come up with. So let's move on to Joe Biden's inauguration speech. I never put a whole lot of weight into these things. A lot of times I don't even watch the State of the Union address because really they just serve as kind of a a pep rally for this person's party. And whoever it is, they're not going to be saying much, but they're going to be saying things that their party is going to appreciate. They're going to be saying, you know, the things that we're doing are good. The things that the other people are doing are bad. We're going to make things better. We're going to make things right. I mean, all of those speeches pretty much follow that same format. And there's not really much that you're going to hear in there that is going to make any difference with what's actually going to happen one way or the other. It really is just a pep rally. So in Joe Biden's speech, there was lots of talk about unity and lots of talk about fixing democracy or restoring democracy. I saw a lot of phrases like the country has decided or democracy has won or we're coming out of a dark and challenging time. And Let's be honest, all of those things are a huge stretch at the very least. Uh, This election was still a pretty close election, especially if you consider the popular vote. And you've heard me mention before, the electoral vote is the one that matters. That's the one that elects the president. So why would you talk about the popular vote if it doesn't count? Well, because the popular vote is a very good barometer of how the majority of people actually feel about whatever issue or candidate Um, I would honestly compare this to the total yards in a football game. Uh, If your team gains 500 yards, but you don't score that many points, then you know that you're moving the ball. You're doing a good job getting up and down the field. You just are not quite getting it into the end zone. You know, you just got to make a few tweaks to make sure that you finish those drives with points on the board. However, if you only have 150 total yards in a game, then your offense stinks. You're not moving the ball at all. You're not accomplishing anything. And that signals that you have much, much bigger problems than just managing to score. And so it's the same when it comes to the popular vote. With this election, this display of democracy, uh, sure, the final count tells us that Biden won. And he pretty significantly won when it comes to the electoral college votes. But when you go back to total yards, when you go back to the popular vote, you'll see that there are 70 million people in this country who voted for the other guy. And a lot of them were very passionate and very serious about it. So it's not so easy to say that the country has decided and we're moving forward together when 49% of the people think that this guy is a pedophile or a Chinese spy or an Alzheimer's patient or whatever you want to call him. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how the media covers that divide moving forward. It seems to me that they're really going to focus on unity and moving forward together and just completely ignore the conservative 49% of the country. And 
that's kind of what I think that they're going to do, but it's also certainly possible that they take the route that says that 49% of the country is a domestic terrorist organization and they're white supremacists and they're evil and they must be rooted out and shut down and kicked off of all social media platforms and just completely removed from relevance in one way or another. And it would be hard to go about that both ways. You know, if they completely ignore conservatives, then that gives conservatives time and space to form a newer, possibly better movement and, you know, newer social media platforms and all these kind of things and helps them to kind of regather and, and form a new attack, which could kind of backfire on them. But if you just focus on them and keep calling them terrorists and all of this stuff, then you're going to radicalize a lot more people much faster. And eventually the left is probably going to start losing uh, a lot of their more centrist supporters because they kind of see the writing on the wall that if I'm not following along with the, the most radical of the radicals, then pretty soon I'm going to be called alt-right and canceled and all of this. And, and they're going to kind of want to jump ship from that before things get too crazy for them. It is possible that the media tries to do both at the same time. I kind of look back at that still image from, I think it was CNN, uh, where the, the headline at the bottom of the screen said that these were mostly peaceful protests, and then it shows the reporter standing in front of a burning building. And they definitely can try to say both of these things at the same time, but like I said, uh, I think that they're going to focus on unity and they're just going to tell everyone that everything is okay and that everybody is happy and that everybody loves Joe Biden and they're going to hope that if they say it enough times, then people will roll forward with that and that people will just move with it and everybody will be, will be happy. And honestly, uh, recency bias is a real thing. And if the most recent things that you've heard are that Joe Biden is great and the whole country is happy and everybody is holding hands and singing songs all day long, then recency bias is going to tell a lot of people that maybe that's how things really are because people do have very short memories and, you know, it may actually work. So only time will tell. We'll keep an eye on it and we'll keep talking about it as we move forward. So last episode, we talked about conspiracy theories and how they can be attractive to us because they give us some somewhat easy answers to difficult questions. But we also talked about how conspiracy theories, you know, can be a legitimate thing and that it's a very vague term because you have no idea whether you're talking about just some fairly standard political scandal or whether you're talking about aliens and presidents being taken to Mars and all those kind of things. So I really don't like that term, but unfortunately I don't know of a better way to kind of differentiate between these things. But one thing that I forgot to mention that can make conspiracies very difficult to carry out, even if they are legitimately uh, plans to to do something in secret or to make some sort of changes or to take over something. The thing that can make it very difficult to carry out is that you need a group of people who are all in agreement in order to work together to carry out the conspiracy. It would be one thing if the Illuminati decides that they're going to release the coronavirus into the world to bring about the new world order and cause all the countries to unite under one world government. Sure, maybe they did. But what if one person in the Illuminati disagrees with that plan? Or what if they disagree about who's going to be in charge or how the money will be divided or whatever? And I, I try to even Google how many people are in the Illuminati just to have some general idea of what, you know, what the split would be. I always kind of assumed it's like eight guys sitting in a room in robes or something like that. But the internet was not clear about this at all. Nobody seems to have any idea. Uh, they just know that, you know, it's got Beyonce and Rihanna in it and that's all that matters. So you'll just have to fill in your own crazy conspiracy theory there. But my point is that even within groups that have the same worldviews or the same goals, you may have very different ideas and strategies and means of achieving those goals. 
So a few different people have written to me and asked me what I thought about the Great Reset and if that's something that we need to worry about. And if you don't know what that is, uh, just Google the Great Reset, look it up. There's all kinds of kind of theories and talk about it out there. But the, the general idea is that all these governments of the world are going to come together and they're going to just sort of do away with all of our current money. They're going to throw out all of the fiat money. The dollar's going to go away. The pound's going to go away. The euro's going to go away. And we're just going to move to one world cryptocurrency. And that way, they can distribute the money however they please. That way, you don't have all these rich people hoarding up all the money, keeping it from the poor people. And they can make sure that the poor people have enough money to feed themselves and that the rich people don't get too rich. And of course, it will be cryptocurrency so they can track it so they can make sure that you're not buying anything illegal like drugs or guns or whatever else may be out there that that's going to give them the opportunity to to have this massive world take over and finally kind of enact this great socialist or communist government that we need in order to bring the world into this socialist utopia and when this this first started kind of making the rounds, it did sound like another sort of Illuminati sort of conspiracy theory. But now we've heard Justin Trudeau and a couple other leaders use the phrase out loud and say that we need a great reset. And now that Joe Biden is president, it seems certain to a lot of people that America is going to move us forward into the great reset. And maybe that is what Justin Trudeau and a lot of these people really do want. Maybe they really do plan to move us in that direction. But the problem with this is, who's going to be in charge? Who is going to get all the power? Because if you talk to every communist or socialist that you know, and you ask them what they think they'll be doing if they were to get the system they're asking for, most of them would love to think that they would either be on some council deciding where the food and the money goes, they would be an activist leading the charge to make sure that their group and their passion has their rights, or that they'd be following their life's dreams while comfortably collecting a UBI check every month. That's why socialism is so attractive to a lot of these artists and musicians, because they believe that they'll be free to just work on their craft and hone in their skills, and they'll never have to worry about how to keep the heat on and how to put food on the table. But the problem is, even under socialism, we can't all be artists and musicians and pro-athletes. Somebody has to scrub the toilets. Somebody has to mop the floors. Somebody has to give the old ladies a bath at the nursing home. And somebody is going to force those people to do those jobs. And even if the Great Reset is something that a lot of the world leaders are aiming for, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen. Because they can't all be the Tsar or the King or the Prime Minister. They can't all be the Secretary of Defense or the Chairman of the Federal Reserve. So just as that massive consolidation of world power can appear incredibly attractive if I can be in charge of it, it's also a huge threat to my power if I'm not 100% sure that I would be the one in charge of all of it. At least as the prime minister in Canada, I'm the number one guy on the Canadian totem pole, right? 
But if all these governments combine and I don't get one of the top spots, then I just went from being the most important person in my country to now just being some guy in middle management. So they can plan and hope and wish for a world government all they want. But when it really comes time to try to make it happen, they're going to hesitate a little bit because it's probably going to be a huge threat to their power. And you've got to remember, these people also have very different focuses for creating their own utopia. You've got people like Bernie Sanders or AOC, and they might have a focus on the workers and the unions, and they'll want to create an economy and legal system that's best for those workers, best for the working class, those people. You got somebody like uh, Jill Stein that might be more focused on the environment, and they want the economy to be green first and good for the workers second. Maybe you've got someone like Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton, and they want strong world banks and maybe even these giant corporations to shape the ideas and the spending habits of the people. There's a good chance you're going to have somebody else who wants to focus on building a strong military or police force in order to enforce all of their laws and regulations. And even if you're moving toward one great world socialist government, all of those plans are going to look very, very different. And they're going to have to be accomplished in very, very different ways. And there are going to be different people who get first dibs on the power and the money that goes along with that. So even if all of these people come from the same party and they share the same general worldview, their goals and their methods and their passions are going to be different. And those differences are going to threaten one another's power. Not to mention... How are you going to get all the other countries to buy into it? You know, how many countries do you think will back out when they find out they won't be the ones in charge of the new world government? That sounds great as long as I get to call the shots. But if not, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. So, sure, maybe the Great Reset is a common goal that a lot of these progressive world leaders are aiming for, but that doesn't make it a given, even if they all decided tomorrow that that is what they're going to do and that's how we're going to move forward. There are just way too many decisions to be made, way too much power to be lost to make this plan happen efficiently. So, as you've heard me say many, many times before, gridlock is a good thing. Gridlock is the best thing that we can hope for. When people in political power are fighting and arguing and butting heads with one another, we, the people, are the ones winning those arguments. Now, I do have a theory on how I think they could try to make this work, but right now I'm looking at the time. I'm running a little bit low on time, and I think I'll save that for the next episode. So let's keep an eye on the news. You can let me know what else you want to talk about. You know where to find me. I'm on Facebook.com slash Garrett again, Twitter.com slash Garrett again. You can find me on MeWe. Uh, username is Garrett again, first name Garrett, last name again. Email me, Garrett again at pm.me, and feel free to reach out to me, and I do my best to respond to everybody who reaches out in good faith. And I would love for you to give me more topics that you want to hear about on the show. That's how we make it great, is by giving you, the listener, what you're looking for. So, thank you so much for listening, and we will talk more in the next episode. And until then, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here. Get out of here.